Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. and welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, my name is Patricia Marks, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Ocasio Tovo, who is the author of Progressive Mothers, Better Babies, Race, Public Health, and the State in Brazil between 1850 and 1945, a book which was published by the University of Texas Press. Um, Dr. Otovo is Associate Professor of History and a core faculty member of the African and African Diaspora Studies Program, and an affiliate faculty member of the Kimberly Green Latin American and Caribbean Center at Florida International University, where she currently also serves, because you don't have enough work, as the director of the graduate programs in the history department. She also teaches courses in Latin America and modern Brazil, and topics such as gender, race, public health, and the social history of medicine. So if you are interested in these topics, this is definitely a book for you. So speaking about the book itself, um, Progressive Mothers and Better Babies is a book that I think will speak to anyone who is interested in the intersecting histories of race, gender, and class, both in modern Brazil, but also well beyond it. And in many regards, um, the book provides important contributions to scholars seeking to develop a better understanding of the essential role assigned to mothers and specifically to black mothers by physicians and public health reformers in a deeply patriarchal society. And in the case of Brazil in the century that is covered by the book, a society that was also undergoing very profound social, cultural, and political transformations, such as the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, uh, the wholesale abolition of, of slavery decades later, as well as the transition from monarchy to republic and subsequently even to an authoritarian fascist regime. Um, so um, suffice it to say that this is a very rich book and a book that will interest scholars working in the intersections of race, medicine, gender, and social class. So Dr. Otovo, welcome and thank you for writing this book. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this conversation and this podcast and 
for such a thorough and uh, astute uh, brief summary of, of the book. I appreciate that. It's really my pleasure to speak with you. So as it is uh, customary uh, for the channel, we like to start with you and particularly knowing a little bit more about how you came into this field and into this project in particular. Absolutely. Um, so one of the challenges I, I immediately am faced with in answering your question is, is one that you outlined in your introductory comments, and that is that uh, of which field exactly are we, <laughs> are we addressing? Because it is one, um, you know, my research does intersect um, and bring together a number of different approaches to thinking about history. And I think thinking about social dynamics, uh, perhaps even in mm-hmm. interdisciplinary terms. Um, but I've long had um, an interest in thinking about how historians can see broader social um, changes and political changes through looking closely at family dynamics. Uh, so that's something that had um, interested me for a long time when I when I first developed uh, the research that formed the, the core of this book. Um, and I also certainly had a long-held interest in um, definitions of race, lived reality of, of race, as well as um, the particular moment in the Americas of this transition from um, slave-owning societies to, to free or, or wage labor societies in economic terms. So those interests um, have been with me for a while. Obviously, neither of those topics can one address without thinking seriously about gender. Um, about without thinking uh, seriously about um, political change, as I said, over time. And I think the the last element that I, that I added as I began to look at these things in Brazil um, was an interest in health, uh, because obviously families thinking about race, um, even thinking about slavery, brings us to uh, questioning um, how we understand the human body, right, and the markers of the bodies and, and how uh, bodies exist mm-hmm. in relation to one another. And as I d- developed those kind of theoretical interests, uh, I began to look more seriously at health and, and found that um, looking at or, or researching, tracing the history of health institutions uh, directed at families is a great place to see all of these things come together and really complicated um, nuanced and and sometimes contradictory ways. So that's those are kind of the driving interests that brought me to this. Um, Brazilian history is uh, just fascinating on its own. I never have a good answer to mm-hmm. to why <laughs> why Brazil is the best uh, kind of national history to to delve into. All I can say is that it's absolutely fascinating, as you well know. And um, looking at the 19th century and the early 20th century, as you outline yourself such a dynamic period right. and this mm-hmm. um, enormous country, this very complex and diverse population uh, that it's just rife, really kind of ripe for exploring um, these, these topics that interest me. Uh, so this was uh, research that I began as graduate student um, when I was pursuing my PhD at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And it just developed and developed over time. And I I began to just kind of push the implications, I guess is the best way to say that, Mm -hmm. push the implications of some of the questions that I was asking further uh, in hopes of um, really beginning to look at the most broad significance or the um, 
the most telling or consequential uh, impact of, of uh, the history of particularly Afro-Brazilians, women and children's health and institutions devoted to them and, and to family welfare over these, um, as I said, kind of dynamic and even tumultuous decades. Right. So could you tell us a little bit about, about more about the process of um, turning the dissertation into this, into this book? Absolutely. So I'd say I think that um, when I <clears throat> began this research and was looking at it from the perspective of a dissertation, I was probably more interested in <clears throat> questions related to um, the development of medical knowledge about um, mothers and mothering as, as a family activity over time, and more interested in um, institutions uh, that arose sponsored by those, particularly men, but men and women, uh, who developed these, this new intense fascination with mothering as a national activity from the late 19th century into the early 20th. So I think that that was, that was kind of the smaller set of questions mm -hmm. that I had when I was looking at the dissertation. In the process of transforming this then into a book, um, again, as I said, I, I began to think more broadly about how we can see this one province and then state in um, the Northeast of Brazil as both an example and perhaps even somewhat um, because of its relationship to um, the medical academy in Brazil, uh, somewhat of an exception to a, a larger trend of the medicalization of family life uh, over those decades, as well as how peoples of African descent both encountered new opportunities to be part of these uh, growing institutions. Well, I'll call them kind of um, welfare mm -hmm. institutions or, or welfare policies, I think is a little bit more accurate than to, than to, to talk uh, about a more formalized welfare state. But to see, to see peoples of African descent finding opportunities um, as these uh, new kinds of creations came into being, but at the same time finding their opportunities to be included or kind of thought about as Brazilians in a, in a new light, really constrained by um, longer held presumptions and stereotypes and even just the, the history of slavery um, uh, about related to race and, and particularly that intersection of race and gender. So that's how I began to, to think mm -hmm. more broadly about what studying um, health, thinking about the access that people have to health institutions, what gives them access, right? right. And it's, in yeah. this case, we're talking about people who were um, could claim access to a certain set of resources based on their uh, condition as uh, mothers of a certain kind of lower socioeconomic class. So um, how they gain access, what gives them kind of in the uh, political or, or even the, the sense of national identity, what gives them a claim to access. Mm -hmm. And then what are, um, as I said, the, the constraints or um, uh, the limitations um, placed upon how people are given that access and, and the hierarchies ex that exist and the differentiations that are made. Um, so that's the kind of in the intellectual terms, mm -hmm. um, the way the book uh, began to develop and, and thinking more carefully uh, about the family side of these dynamics um, 
and, and, and trying to, I did my best, the readers will, <laughs> will form their opinions, but um, trying to do my best to put the families in conversation with the institutions rather than see this process only as top down or to see only med- see medical knowledge developing um, only within the medical schools and the clinics. Um, but also thinking about how families um, uh, negotiate their own care, negotiate the attention that is paid to uh, their child rearing activities and to their children and to the, uh, certainly the process of childbirth. Um, so that's kind of the broader. Um, yeah, and I and I think that broader ways from that's something that. that actually came out in the book quite well is this uh, all throughout the multiple chapters, and I think especially the first four. Um, then you see that despite physicians and health reformers better claims to superior knowledge, families, there was always a difficulty in accepting their knowledge as actually the most adequate for being for birthing or child rearing. Families held a great deal of discretion in how they raised their children. So I think that actually you succeeded in making that come out. Um, And and, in demonstrating that... Uh, that this is true. I think for for what I for my work as well is the physicians and health reformers in particular make a lot of claims about how mm-hmm. the world is and what is truth about the world, but making everyone believe them is a, a lot more complicated, and especially Absolutely. because it, it influences people's quotidian practices and how they That's experience right. the world. So I think actually Absolutely. that that came out very beautifully throughout throughout the book. Okay. Um, okay. So perhaps maybe we, I always like to start a little bit with more of a conceptual and methodological mm-hmm. question. And in this case, is this question hinges on the idea of maternalism, which is essential to mm-hmm. the book and which is not only a through line, but it brings the book together ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, so first I'd like you to unpack the meaning of maternalism uh, for listeners yeah. and then to tease out uh, why you wrote this story of maternalism um, specifically in the context of Bahia. Absolutely. So I use maternalism in in a few different ways. Um, For those who have some, have done some reading in um, 19th century and early 20th century world history, um, may be familiar that, um, and it kind of differs uh, by by region and by nation, but from the early 19th century to the middle of the 19th century, there was a a movement in many different parts of the world, in Europe and in um, Asia and Africa and the, and the Americas, uh, to valorize or to understand that um, the maternal activities, the child rearing activities uh, uh, performed by women, have a great impact on uh, national well being. Right. So maternalism, um, in one sense, does refer to a kind of reformist movement um, that um, was really global uh, uh, across the the early to mid 19th century, later 19th century and some other places um, uh, to, as I said, think about how raising children impacts the nation as a whole. So uh, we can kind of think about that as as. in terms of health and also kind of population change. Maternalism also refers to the kind of explosion 
um, certainly in the Brazilian case, of new knowledge produced by physicians, new specializations that physicians acquired over these same decades to serve, um, to, to create the kind of foundation for these kinds of um, movements. And which came first, uh, again, depends kind of on the, the, the context, but um, it also refers then to the uh, creation of knowledge around um, women's and children's uh, health and well-being with the understanding that that has a greater societal impact. I also use maternalism to think about the ways in which child-rearing activities and mothers are entangled ideas, but not exactly the same idea. <laughs> and so that brings us a bit to uh, why I, I studied Bahia and, and what is specific and, and really interesting about Brazil at this moment and for this topic. So as you said in your introductory comments, um, Brazil, as you know, many people will know, being the largest slave-holding uh, society in the Americas in the 19th century, um, experienced a slow kind of gradual process towards the abolition of slavery. Um, because of Brazil's size, uh, as well as its kind of complex economy, um, slavery was really deeply embedded in Brazil in all kinds of economic um, uh, spheres, including in household service, which is not a surprising idea, right? And so one of the things that um, I, I, I mean when I, I talk about child rearing and mothering being, um, uh, or child rearing and the status of being mother being uh, related, but um, not necessarily um, equivalent ideas is that certainly in Brazil, as in many places in the Americas where uh, enslaved people worked in household service, this also included um, particularly women who worked in childcare. As nannies, um, as when I say work, excuse me, enslaved women mm -hmm. um, who labored as, um, as nannies, as wet nurses, um, who were cooks and laundresses and all kinds of specialized servants and different kinds of uh, household labor um, in, uh, from you know, very uh, wealthy households right on down the line. And so the kind of complexity of thinking about campaigns to improve the health and well-being of mothers and children in a society that um, held slaves, in a society working towards um, abolition by the middle of the 19th century, again, just brings a lot of, of complexities. And so in the book, I really try to focus on women who were mothers but who also spent most of their laboring hours. And so this is both uh, before the end of slavery in Brazil uh, and, and after, as we kind of get to the turn of the 20th century, um, women who spent most of their laboring hours, either enslaved or for, for mm -hmm. wages, performing child rearing labor. Right. So that is women who did um, care for children who were nannies, who um, worked in, in households. And so, um, that sense of, of maternalism, thinking about child rearing as a form of labor, right, performed both by women who um, give birth to children and by women who raise children, either uh, out of affection or relationship or um, um, in bondage or as um, re for remuneration, 
all of those ways of, of thinking about child rearing as an activity complicated uh, by the different social uh, statuses that women, um, particularly, uh, as I said, women of African descent uh, could occupy right, in Brazil and specifically in Bahia. And then Bahia, I find fascinating. I, I feel like I keep repeating that <laughs> word, but it's the most uh, the most apt. Um, so Bahian history is really, really interesting on this topic uh, because Bahia itself, and, and uh, I think I explained this um, in the first chapter of the book, even in the 19th century, had a particular kind of narrative in Brazil uh, because Bahia is uh, one of the oldest um, areas of Brazil to be uh, settled by the mm-hmm. Portuguese um, and also part of the kind of sugar belt of Brazil during the colonial period. So Brazil, excuse me, Bahia had this kind of um, traditionalist um, cachet or trope uh, attached to it for a very long time. Um, so thinking about a place that was considered very traditional mm-hmm to hold on to the um, kind of um, colonial ways of the past in a century, as I uh, began my comments explaining, uh, in a century where things were changing dramatically, I I found to be a very productive context uh, to to bring these questions to. And then there were, um, so one of the the, uh, points that I I try to get across in uh, my book, just about Bahia, for those who are interested in that in that um, region of that state now, is to push back against these kind of simplistic ways uh, of thinking about Bahia as backwards, as traditional, as conservative, or as um, um, somehow and uh, to think uncritically about um, uh, Bahia's um, African culture and African heritage, push back against those things a little bit and, tr- and see Bahia and see this place, see these families, um, uh, these women raising their children in these households as part of uh, a period of change in Brazil, mm-hmm. not the exception to it, but part right. of it in, in ways that um, may look different than in some other states, but really have uh, some some interesting correlations to it. Um, so those are some of the questions that um, that I, I kind of bring to, to thinking about maternalism, both, as I said, as a global movement, um, and then as uh, having specific contours uh, in Brazil and in Bahia. Um, so I should also add, for those who are unfamiliar with Bahia, Bahia is uh, one of the states in Brazil to this day, and certainly in the 19th, early 20th century, with the largest population of people of African right. descent. Mm-hmm. As I said, you know, Brazil, Bahia being in that um, sugar belt, um, uh, 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 an area that um, was had a, a strong, of course, um, slave economy, but also, I think, associated with slavery in ways sometimes that other areas of Brazil that also had strong slave economies um, maybe um, are, are, are um, not as, um, don't carry that baggage so much into the 21st century in terms of how they're they're thought about in the Northeast in general. Um, uh, that is kind of in the cultural imagination. Yeah, I and I, I actually um, I thought that was very interesting, and um, 
you know, immediately it made me think the way you you addressed Bahia and why Bahia made me think of Julian Perd's work, Race, Place, and Medicine, and how through that work also comes a very distinct idea of Bahia that is not necessarily sort of fatalistic or that portrays, uh, you use the expression stock scripts that I really like. <laughs> and actually, I'm, I've started to use it now. <laughs> uh, oh, good. <laughs> but it, it, is, it is really, it's this inherited narrative that you sort of re- repeat without thinking much about it. Um, and you end up reorientalizing uh, that reality in a certain way. Um, so, so perhaps speaking of tropes, we can go into the first protagonist of your first chapter. And, and I have to say that the way you structured the chapters in, in that way through specific um, protagonists, in this case, the Mulata Velha or Old Mammy, was very, very effective, very helpful. It gave a character for the reader to latch onto. Um, so um, this place takes this chapter takes place in in this context that you were talking about the end of the 19th century, where you know 1850 the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, 88 the abolition of slavery, and then 89 the transition from monarchy or empire to republic. And in this chapter, you present this conflict between past and present, um, and the past is embodied by Mulata Velha, and the present or the future, actually, is personified by these health reformers who promote the practice of puericultura or puericulture, uh, which is sort of the, the science of child rearing. Uh, so perhaps you can speak more about this conflict between new and old and about puericulture itself as a scientific domain of biomedical intervention that directly addressed anxieties about national and racial degeneration and um, how it in, entered this dialogue between climatic determinism and uh, a way of delivering um, a healthier, more moderate, modern and prosperous Brazil. Absolutely. You asked a big yeah, question. Yeah, I know. Let me do my best. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me just try to distill this chapter in a, in a, in a few uh, big paragraphs here. Um, so let me begin with... Um, let me begin with uh, just the, the, the question or the issue of conflict between past and present, right? So I, I agree, and it's certainly my argument there, that there are some contradictions between the um, past as it's remembered or um, essentialized perhaps uh, in, in Bahia or in Brazil in general in a nation that is experiencing such rapid and profound and meaningful um, change, right? Um, so there, there's a contradiction between holding on to the past as something nostalgic mm-hmm. as, as a way to um, anchor society through what's, what's um, anxiety-producing change, and at the same time um, uh, in a climate where health reform and sort of reform based on science in general, whether it's in health or in industry or in, um, in, in other, um, um, other spheres is understood as the way forward. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so obviously that there is some tension there, there's a conflict and there is a contradiction, but at the same time, um, one of the things that I try to get at when I, when I use these kind of phrases like stock scripts, 
um, is that the new does not necessarily replace the old, right? Yeah. <laughs> or, or completely wipe it away. But rather there is um, um, an integration mm. uh, of some of these older ways of thinking about families, these older kind of social hierarchies into what is new. So what is new um, is, is intricate right. and, and mm-hmm. complex in that way because it, it um, embraces, right? some forward looking thinking. And, and I hope this isn't coming across as the forward looking thinking is the, the positive and the backward looking <laughs> thinking is negative. I don't want to put a value judgment either way because both of them are problematic mm-hmm, right. for different reasons. Right. Um, but that the, the kind of forward looking um, uh, narrative can still pull along with it as kind of baggage. I think I said a moment ago, some of these, these older ways. So, so let me, um, Uh, give an example to make sense of that. So um, in Bahia, at the medical school of Bahia, uh, in the late, uh, the kind of waning years of the um, 19th century, when um, the end of slavery was on the horizon and and, um, Brazilians knew this, right? So slavery was kind of a dying institution. Um, Unlike in the United States, it didn't die in a war, right? But rather over a period of decades, so that the, the end of slavery was always um, mm-hmm. anticipated and, and on the horizon. It wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't a shock to the system. I, sh- I guess I can say it that way. Um, so at the medical school of, of Bahia uh, and uh, also at its counterpart, the medical mm-hmm. school of Rio de Janeiro, physicians and um, their students became very interested in what science might have to tell a nation about Brazil, um, or, or what they could they could learn from scientific models uh, to weather this this sea change of becoming an, a, a nation that no longer depended on on slavery, not just economically, but also, as I said, to kind of anchor social mm-hmm. relations. Right? What what would a nation look like on the other side of that? Um, and again, it's not not really a question of integration in the in the U.S. sense because Brazil was always an integrated right. nation, so it, the, mm-hmm. the integration is not necessarily the, the question. But you know, how could science guide um, this kind of societal change? And this again uh, brings me back to a point I made earlier about kind of global circuits of um, intellectual ideas, right? Um, so pericultura or, or periculture, scientific child rearing, was one version of uh, a number of really overlapping theories about how science can be harnessed uh, to uh, guide societal change, right? And to to ensure positive outcomes um, um, in in societies for for future development, right? So I think most people would think of eugenics Mm -hmm. as an example of another type of of theory. Um, Pericultura and eugenics are closely related, um, eugenics is probably best understood as an amalgamation of a number of different types of theories with different authors um, and, and different um, kind of uh, proponents anyway. But Predicultura uh, was was one of those. And the notion being that um, scientific interventions, scientific, uh, close scientific monitoring by physicians could help ensure the best outcomes in babies, right? And um, that rather than think um, 
maybe simplistically about genetics, right? To think of, uh, both about genetics and also about um, how children are raised in, in families and, right. and how mm-hmm. um, physicians can um, basically supervise the process of child rearing to ensure the best um, outcomes, healthy children for a healthy nation, a healthy workforce, um, healthy Brazil, healthy U.S., you know, healthy other nations that, that kind of latched on the, to, to these kinds of um, notions. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. So this is, of course, um, Pericultura is a, um, initially a French idea um, um, from a, sort of born in, 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 in France in the 19th century, um, particularly by a physician named Pin, um, Adolphe Pinard. And as Brazilian physicians, as I said, in, in Bahia and other places began to kind of think about these um, best outcomes, they were, of course, confronted with a society that uh, was not only more racially diverse than um, the one that, uh, that kind of birthed these, these initial seeds of an idea about pericultura, more racially diverse, more racially integrated, and also um, uh, a nation in which race was a marker of social hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. right? So these kind of complex ways of, um, uh, of trying to think about how uh, a nation like that could use science to, uh, to create outcomes that would be best for all babies, right? But would not necessarily mean a collapsing, mm-hmm. right, of, of um, um, uh, Brazil's social structure. So that's one of the things that, that I, I, I try to balance very carefully in, in this book, that I think that um, all of my protagonists, in, in terms of the, the real people yeah. and, not the, and not the tropes, um, are committed to the outcome of, of healthier children yeah. um, and mm-hmm. assisting mothers in, in raising healthier children. But it's not necessarily in any kind of radical sense um, that uh, suggests uh, an equality of children right. or their mothers through this process. Um, so that's what the, the, the first um, chapter about uh, Bahia tries to to explain how um, can uh, a scientific idea begin to be applied, uh, adjusted, and uh, um, made mm-hmm. to fit right a, a particular societies. You know, from the perspective of, of those um, um, developing these ideas and reading these texts, to fit, uh, fit a society and the the um, changes that they hoped 
would uh, would occur and the changes that they hope to avoid right. at the same at, at the same time. Um, and so the Mulatavelia again refers to Bahia itself, mm-hmm. right? Um, so Mulatavelia or um, other historians even before me translate that as old mm-hmm. black mammy, right? Um, the old mammy of Brazil, again metaphorically, right. was Bahia. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so adding a further kind of uh, level of, of complexity on this, this question of um, using um, these kind of population-oriented scientific theories in a state that was imagined to be um, traditionalist, that the more the most traditional nickname one could think of, right? That Bahia is Brazil's mm-hmm, old name, right. right? Bahia is both in racial terms and in gendered terms, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, something from the past that is maybe nostalgic, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it's not the industrious man of the future, right? right? That is going to. Um, to lead Brazil into the 20th century. So that's the kind of um, uh, contradiction that I, I tried to grapple with in the introduction and kind of setting the stage um, theoretically mm-hmm. or in kind of cultural terms for the institutions that later came to be in the beginning years of the 20th century and then the experiences of medical professionals and of families, mothers and children in particular within those institutions and the, the political will and um, political um, um, support or sometimes lack thereof, right? That uh, swirled around the, the, the creation of, of these kinds of initiatives. Right. And um, so in, in the, the following chapter, I think that it does, Oh, I'm sorry. And you asked me about climatic determinism too. I just remembered a part that I that I missed. I can circle back to that too. Um, sure, very absolutely. quickly. Yeah. So just to say, um, um, I, I kind of uh, touched upon this when when I mentioned that um, Puerto Cultura um, and other kind of theories of this ilk, as we mm-hmm. as we think about mm-hmm. eugenics again, being a very a house with many rooms, right? <laughs> um, were, were, were theories, again, that um, were um, based more on nurture right. than nature, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and the understanding that um, um, medicine, science, um, institutions, policies can actually uh, influence the outcome that is the health and welfare of um, children who later become the adults and the, the citizens of a nation, um, and it's not predetermined, for example, um, by strictly racial background or by um, the the climate, the the uh, kind of tropical nature of certainly uh, Brazil or other places in um, um, mm-hmm. Latin America or even Africa, right? Kind of dealing with these biases about climatic determinism and that, that tropical places are predestined right. for some kind of lesser national um, uh, uh, kind of l- lesser national status uh, vis-a-vis the kind of global um, um, It's almost the impossibility of modernity in a way to, to occur right, in, a, exactly. in a place that is tropical 
Um, right, exactly. Yeah, I, I thought that came out. That first chapter, I think, is really important. It, it does set set up the the book quite quite beautifully um, to to what comes next and to the battles of the. I think the the following three chapters, which are more or less around the same mm-hmm. period chronologically. Yes, um, yes. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps yes. we can move to, to the second chapter where you discuss the figure of mm-hmm. Mãe Preta, Black Mammy. And mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you discuss, so this is a chapter that moves to the 20th century and the date of 1933 is particularly important for multiple reasons. Among one mm-hmm. of those is the publication of uh, Freire, Gilbert Freire's Master and Slaves. Mm-hmm. And... Um, in in it, he articulates one of these visions. Uh, let's mm-hmm, say, exactly, uh, I, I, idyllic sort of visions of Maim Preta. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, there's another vision of of black motherhood that is articulated by the Bahian medical reformers, mm-hmm. uh, Marta Gonjustaire and Al- Alvaro Bahia in particular, and they are obsessed with mother's milk and breastfeeding and yes. <laughs> free free milk yes. dispensaries. And I wanted you yeah. to talk about more about that. And I actually yeah. did not know Brazil had better baby contests. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> actually. absolutely. Um, but so I wanted you. Uh, exactly, robustez was really a powerful concept. Yeah. Robust babies. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So I wanted you to talk a little bit more about this duplicity of my preta. Sure. And as both as a mother in her own right, facing enormous mm-hmm. challenges in the racialized mm-hmm. and socially segregated um, context of Bahia. But also as wet nurses, as the women who yeah. often breastfed children uh, in, yes, in wealthier yeah. families. Yes. Yeah. So um, I agree completely <laughs> with uh, with the way that you've laid that out in um, a strange way, and I, I continue to just be so drawn to this idea. The link between all of this is really breast milk. <laughs> yeah. It is in fact that um, that. Health reformers saw the intimacy mm-hmm. of breastfeeding as really um, kind of a metaphor for the well-being of children. So some of it is literally about the ability of women to um, nurse their own children, but also that the the kind of bond created between mother and child. Um, living in a society that allows that bond to flourish rather than uh, creates an obstacle to it, either by means of wealth mm-hmm. <laughs> or um, by, by poverty, right? Um, seeing that as um, really the linchpin in um, raising healthier, healthier children for Brazil's modernity, right? For right. Brazil's 20th century. Uh, and so in that chapter, I really wanted to kind of play with all of these ideas that um, overlap. The idea of um, the, the mammy as, um, as I said before, kind of a, a nostalgic or even revered element in uh, Brazil's kind of harmonious racial mix, mm-hmm. right? As um, a, kind of one version of... of um, uh, Brazil's cultural imaginary would have it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or for health reformers to see two things, two things that are um, in fact opposite, right? 
to see um, Mammy as um, illustrative of the fact that poor women have to work right. uh, to mm-hmm. care for the children of others rather be- than being available to their own children. Right? Mm-hmm. And that that um, sets those children up for um, really tragic rates of um, infant mortality, right? Um, So seeing both that and then seeing that kind of ironically, um, one way that uh, children in need could be assisted, uh, that is children with with health conditions or um, children uh, whose uh, who were uh, orphaned right? or, or children and, and uh, children, excuse me, infants um, in, in situations where they were in need, one way that they could be provisioned with healthy nourishment was through the bodies of mm-hmm. um, impoverished women. So all of those things are, are kind of happening at the same time. And then as you also state, the reality of um, most um, black Brazilian, excuse me, black, black Bahian women working in household service, even in the 20th century, working as nannies and, and being mothers in their own right to their, their own mm-hmm. birth children, as well as um, helping to mother uh, their charges, the, the children of um, the households in, when, in which they worked. Right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I, I kind of tried to place those three overlapping, but again, kind of very tense (laughs) notions of Black motherhood um, side by side, and uh, uh, think about how um, they challenge in some sense, right, um, the 19th century viewpoint of of Black womanhood and Black maternity, Mm -hmm. but also in some sense reinforce it. Um, So that gets back to my, my point a little bit earlier about even the modern um, bringing along with it um, what came before. Uh, and I also, in this chapter, began to um, explore the households in which domestic servants, so women who worked mm. in household service, the households in which they labored, right? And that those households themselves being um, hierarchical spaces, right? So spaces in which Absolutely. we can think about, you know, families being um, um, raised, nurtured, it, again, with intimacy and with love, but also um, the uh, kind of separation that the duties one held uh, as a domestic service meant, the domestic servant, the, the duties that, that and responsibilities taking away from the ability to offer nourishment and intimacy and um, um, presence right mm-hmm. to to the birth women of those of those children so kind of thinking about household spaces as um, spaces of both love and labor right, right. right. And, and those things not being mutually exclusive in fact right. I'm completely intertwined and and uh, and uh, uh, interrelated. 
Um, so, so those are some of the things. I, I think the di- what you just mentioned as um, those spaces of labor, especially for mm-hmm. Black women, leads very well into chapter three, which is about the problem of the, the foundling population and how to right. take, how to take care of these children, um, sure. and the lack of support for mothers in, in many senses to in many ways to to maintain their children. Um, yes. In in both in terms of the the care that they are able to give, as mm-hmm. well as just socioeconomically, exactly. Um, so exactly. I I had I I really liked this chapter. I think it 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 untangled very well the problems of welfare and um, mm-hmm. adoption, um, and and public health, and I. I th- So I struggled on what I want to do specifically to unpack a little bit more. But I think the turning wheel, uh, I eventually learned the the idea of the turning wheel because it is this symbol where, again, um, like in chapter one, the Mulata Velha, it's the symbol where old and new are in collision. Um, So why was the abolition of the turning wheel important for health reformers and in their motherhood-centered approach to the foundling problem? Sure. Um, so as you stated a moment ago, all three of these chapters really overlap chronologically. Right. Mm-hmm. So at the same time that health reformers were um, creating new services to try to aid mothers, to, putting on better baby contests to, to really to disseminate information uh, uh, about uh, healthy child rearing, um, better baby contests did give prizes, mm-hmm. right? But the, the real purpose uh, was to disseminate uh, information and to um, hopefully, um, encourage uh, uh, women to to bring their children to the to these free clinics, um, the the family welfare clinics. Uh, in today's parlance, we would say uh, well baby clinics. Um, so at the same time that that those uh, types of initiatives were coming into being, health reformers in Bahia were very concerned about the turning wheel, and so the turning wheel, uh, for those who are, are unfamiliar, um, basically. Um, Kind of mechanism that allowed um, anyone—I'm going to say adults, family members, or neighbors, or anyone—to um, leave a child anonymously to Catholic charity. So it's just a mechanism that would a- allow a child to be um, rotated, basically a rotating right. mechanism, mm-hmm. rotated to the interior of um, the Santa Casa, which is the the, the, the Catholic charity, lay Catholic. Um, organization to, to give a child to Catholic charity, but without having to reveal the identity of the person depositing the child there. Okay. That is a very old medieval um, uh, mechanism or, or um, just invention. So child welfare reformists in Bahia were very concerned about the turning wheel because it seemed, as you said, to symbolize that um, children in desperate situations uh, had to be cut off from their families, their lineage, their heritage, their their community, in order to receive some kind of help or assistance. Okay? So they were very concerned about the the kind of break um, with uh, community, the break with society, the marker kind of for life. Of, of a child who was placed in the turning wheel and then was raised without knowing from, from where um, they came. So that's on the symbolic side. 
They were also very concerned because founding children had such an enormously high mortality rate. And this isn't because of the mechanism, but just in general, that um, Mm -hmm. foundling children had the highest mortality rate of any kind of sector of um, Brazilian society of any age. So foundling children were extremely likely Mm -hmm. um, to live short lives once they were um, turned over um, to to charity. So for both of those reasons, um, reformers were very concerned about the turning wheel and they saw um, the modern, the progressive, the, uh, the, the scientific way to resolve this problem to both improve facilities um, so that children who were, who were um, left for, uh, as foundlings to, to um, be raised um, by Catholic charity or to be raised eventually by the, the, the state government, um, so that children could be raised in, in healthier facilities and have just better conditions to better medical care, et cetera, to improve their, their chances of, of, of survival. Um, but also to eliminate this presumption that the only way to get, or not presumption, but this reality that, that one mm-hmm. of the very few ways to get assistance was to um, break a child from their um, family and their their community, and instead institute a policy by where um, by which families could register their children with their names, um, their the names of their parents, the names of their godparents, and have them turned over um, to Catholic charity mm-hmm. or to the state um, for um, a period of time, perhaps temporarily and then retrieve them when conditions allowed for the family to take, uh, to take care of the child. Now, again, why I, I always play with this kind of old and new, the traditional and the modern, and um, the contradictions within all of these systems is that what happened in Bahia with this change that absolutely helped foundling children to live longer and drastically reduced mm-hmm. the mortality rates amongst this population, those kinds of measures don't address the root problem, of course, which is that many families um, in this society don't have the socioeconomic means to raise their children, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so many families are living in poverty. Um, so many families have no access to education or better housing or, you know, means by which to um, improve their um, station, right? That even leaving a child with their um, identity and, and having the child know who they are doesn't necessarily mean that the family can come back and retrieve the child over a short period of time. So the separation part continued, in fact, um, yeah. with the, the change in these systems, even though um, the, uh, the, the kind of figure of the tragic abandoned child of the 19th century um, became less and less the, the, the case in, mm-hmm. in the 20th, right? Mm-hmm. That families could register their children, they could leave them there, their children would know exactly who they are and who their parents are and who their community was. But it didn't necessarily mean that the families and the children could be in the same household right. because of um, um, continued kind of poverty, discrimination, 
the the realities of of living in, in an unequal society um, as Bahia uh, was at that time, and and uh, most of Brazil certainly in the urban areas. Uh, so those are the kinds of um, uh, messy, right? right very, I mean, the kind of messy much. questions um, uh, about I, I modernization. Yeah, th- those tensions are, are very are very well explored, and you know, indeed, the the misericordia is still yeah. exists today for yeah, many absolutely. ways. So it's it's a very important institution to understand absolutely. as the as yeah. both in Brazil and Portugal, as these countries are undergoing fundamental transformations and secularization, changing of political exactly. regimes. They're very interesting to, to understand how these mm-hmm. um, populations are are re reconceptualized in some way. Yeah. So the, yeah. the, and and you're right when you say in some way because yeah. of course I, I I was I was trying not to give uh, get, get too far into the details but you know what we're talking about here is a marriage of the secular state with the absolutely you know old Catholic institutions so it's another way for us to really question what we mean when we think about um, modernity or modernization as a process that's on an opposite pole um, from yeah. uh, traditionalism or yeah, that, that sort of modernity as a process that sort of emerges in a tabula rasa when it doesn't. It, it yeah, no, out, it does not. Exactly. Out of these existing exactly. institutions. That's right. That's right. Um, so moving on to the to the next chapter, you you focus on the curiosa. Uh, yes. So who is this woman? And particularly in the context of this clash between gynecology. And midwifery, yeah. traditional midwifery. Yeah. So this one, um, I think, uh, brings us back to a statement you made early on uh, about families having discretion and having choice. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a, uh, <laughs> and, and this is a process that we see in a lot of places. Brazil is not necessarily unique in this. Um, and the um, uh, coexistence, let's say. Yeah. The, the, the troubled coexistence, sometimes more uh, tense than, than at others, uh, between uh, biomedicine and, and, and uh, clinical uh, gynecology and uh, obstetrics. And um, some of the older and, um, I guess I will say, less formalized uh, um, uh, practices and, and practitioners that families have used for, for centuries to help keep themselves healthy and their children healthy and to bring their children into the world. So this chapter really tries to um, uh, unpack a little bit, both that conflict uh, between um, biomedicine kind of growing Mm -hmm. or attempting to grow in um, legitimacy and um, in influence uh, over the the early 20th century um, and coming into competition with uh, midwives and and other kinds of ways of thinking about keeping children healthy and um, and and certainly birthing, um, but it also tries to um, present a more um, gendered argument, not just about the competition between practitioners, uh, whether they are biomedical or uh, um, um, of some of these uh, older practices but also the ways in which um, biomedicine gets very much gendered male. Right. And mm-hmm. um, these other um, approaches to healing the body um, or to birthing are gendered female. 
and so thinking about the kind of gendered implications of um, these modernization um, uh, tropes and, and, and narratives and thinking about them not as, um, not as only kind of men on one, on one side and women on the other, but rather a kind of knowledge that's masculinized right. mm-hmm. regardless of the practitioner, mm-hmm. right? Versus a kind of knowledge that's feminized, again, regardless of the practitioner's um, uh, own gender, right? Uh, and, and so that's what that chapter uh, attempts to, to kind of explore and to think about um, the... Um, attempted kind of incorporation of um, midwives and midwifery into these um, modern, into modern health reform, mm-hmm. uh, as well as teaching predicultura, that is teaching scientific child rearing um, to uh, poor women in particular in the community um, in, in Bahia in the city of Salvador. Yeah. And um I thought that those gendered aspects of this knowledge were so were very well explored and also mm-hmm. that you demonstrated very effectively how how however much physicians declared that they had superior knowledge people still wanted midwives. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and so that was an interesting an interesting conflict. Yeah. Um so yeah. the last chapter is on Vargas, the Vargas period and um it's called Pai dos Pobres, um, Father mm-hmm. of the Poor, which is what the the image that cra- Vargas crafted about himself. Mm-hmm. So this chapter opposes Bahian maternalism to a national policy of fatherhood that the Vargas mm-hmm. um regime promoted. Um, I wanted you to 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 hear a bit more about how did Bahian maternalism fare during this father-centered uh, Stad Novo, and how did the Stad Novo uh, Trabalhista movement exclude Bahian women in particular? Yeah. Well, I would say Bahian maternalism fared very well, <laughs> um, both in terms of resources, in terms of visibility. Um, to uh, the the Vargas administration, um, and certainly in terms of individuals who were able to kind of parlay um, their successes in, in Bahia into um, national positions. Um, so um, Bahian maternalism fared exceptionally well, I think, <laughs> uh, um, by uh, being focused, right, on... Um, families and, and um, through, again, this kind of masculine um, expertise that um, fit well with um, the emerging uh, medical profession, the professionalization of medicine in, in, in um, Brazil, as well as um, the kind of um, nationalist rhetoric, mm-hmm. I should say, um, of the uh, Vargas era. Bayan women, though, I, ironically, so <laughs> uh, Bayan maternalism, I'll say, fared very well. Um, but my argument in the chapter is Bayan women and um, Bayan men, yeah. really, for that matter, mm-hmm. had really no place in that nationalist rhetoric based around industrialization right. and mm-hmm. the wage earning working man um, and, um, uh, you know, the... the um, hardworking um, factory um, employee who's, 
you know, trying to secure his place against um, uh, immigrants who uh, might be favored. And so those kinds of elements of the um, of the rhetoric, right, don't match the buy-in, didn't match the buy-in reality at all, right? Mm-hmm. Where most women who worked, as I mentioned, worked in household service. They didn't work in a protected um, industry as the um, as the national government, the federal government began to issue labor codes and other things. They, they um, worked in the uh, non-formal sector, basically the informal sector we'd say today. Yeah. Um, they worked in patriarchal households. Um, they really worked um, uh, for those who were employed by wealthier families. They really worked for the families that seemed to be the antithesis of the kind of um, um, Brazilian worker soldier, right? Mm-hmm. That um, Vargas was uh, promoting uh, by the the late 1930s and, and early 1940s. So I think they really had no place at all. Um, I think that um, the idea of assisting um, women and children was a productive one. Mm-hmm. Um, again, for Bahia's uh, state leader, the interventor. And, you know, that, that, that was a, that was a productive uh, kind of activity to be involved in that, that certainly um, um, brought the attention um, of the administration. And, and again, as I said, brought them resources, um, but it didn't do anything really to secure a mm-hmm. place um, for women, uh, these women in the national imaginary. The only place really for them was as the, modern day equivalents to the kind of revered my Preta, right? Of the right. past mm-hmm. to, you know, it's one of these elements in Brazil's harmonious racial mixture in that mythology, right? So, um, and in fact, I think that there, um, there, there's a, um, a, a juxtaposition, right? Bet- between the, the policy and the practice of maternalism mm-hmm. and the, the lived reality of the of the families. And I say women and men, right? Because right. men didn't, didn't pri- primarily work in um, manufacturing either. And you make a point in this chapter to say that uh, the, the maternalist narrative very much erased or elided the role of the father um, and, and, ex- yeah. and excluded them. And I, I actually had questions about that. You know, why, mm-hmm. why was that? Um, you know, one thing I, I came to think about um, could be, you know, the the, the influence of Freire's uh, narrative mm-hmm. of sort of masters and slaves having relationships. But the other could be that the the the, the enslaved family was always a family that could be at any point dismembered yeah, and t- yeah. taken apart. And I, I was wondering yeah. if if you had some insights on that. So I, I absolutely think that that, and, and I, I make some overtures to my own kind of um, presumptions about um, mm-hmm. why why this was. I think that, um, again, in patriarchal society and uh, one that was equally so, if not more so, in the Vargas era, right? Yeah. Because that's, that, that kind of um, patriarchal family, even of the working class, was uh, considered to be the bedrock of the nation, right? Um there really is little room <laughs> kind of conceptually for um, struggling poor families mm-hmm. right? mm-hmm. um, that include uh, the mother and the father, mm-hmm. right? 
So I think in part, it's what you said before that um, certainly black families not really being considered as um, um, solid or um, whole families anyway, right? Kind of um, being being thought of as mothers and children. And maybe there's the father somewhere who um, may or may not be part of the equation in in the present day, right? So that's part of it. And I think it's also the, this idea that there's no room in a patriarchal society for the partner of the dependent to the patriarch. So that, <laughs> yeah. If, if, if I work in a home as the nanny or the maid, right. And, mm-hmm. and this conception, right. Um, then that person is the, the dependent of the, of the patron of, of the um, father of the home. For there to be another father, then yeah. is is a complicated is a complicated idea. So I think it just in terms uh, for the health reformers and they're probably in their own imaginations, mm-hmm. but certainly also appealing to their benefactors and appealing to the state. Right? right. It's a bit of a cleaner narrative, right, to talk right. about mm-hmm. the need to assist vulnerable women and their children um, who work all day long, have no support who are on their own, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and uh, who um, are, you know, being failed by uh, a system that has no, or it's just building its welfare policies and also being failed by the fathers of their children. I, th- I think that that's it's kind of a, a, um, a simplistic, mm-hmm. linear uh, kind of uh, narrative that fits both the, the historical context yeah. And also the, the kind of modern ways, uh, again, that uh, understanding of race and gender continued to be mm-hmm. um, unequal even into the 20th century. So, that, so that's what I think it is. Yeah. And then, of course, Bahia is a mammy, too. And, you know, just, it all <laughs> kind of layers on itself yeah. to be a very kind of um, mother-focused uh-huh. um, uh, in its mythology and mother-focused in the policies. Yeah, and was, um, my point is that that doesn't. We shouldn't equate that to reality and assume right, that you know that 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 narrative means that there were no fathers and partners and and husbands and lovers and etc. Um, in in involved here, but rather the records erase their presence. Absolutely. Um, so. Okay, Z, I've taken so much of your time now. Um, let me just ask you if there was something that we did not discuss that you'd like to touch on, and what oh, else wow. are you working on at the moment? We've discussed so much. I don't yeah. have a good <laughs> nothing immediately comes to my mind that we haven't um, that we we haven't talked about in relation to the research. Um, uh, I'll just say a, a little bit about some things that I'm I'm currently. Mm-hmm working through um, that uh, will come to fruition sometime in the future. I don't know how far into the future, um, hopefully rather soon, but I continue certainly with my interests in um, class and race mm-hmm. and, and gender and health in Brazil. My next project really wants to move a little bit further into the 20th century and um, to consider, um, and, you know, not uh, um, um, women's and children's health um, from the, uh, let's say, from the physical side, mm-hmm. but I'm really interested in um, mental health. Oh, interesting. And um, yeah, the development of Brazilian psychiatry mm-hmm. 
and also um, particularly um, thinking about health institutions, mental health institutions for, again, vulnerable peoples, for um, peoples who are socially um, excluded, mm-hmm. uh, particularly, again, it's kind of moving forward, so particularly through the years of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, kind mm-hmm. of thinking about Brazil's military dictatorship, and just um, mm-hmm. turning my my attention to, to thinking about that kind of social marginalization, mm-hmm. that status, and um, the development of mental health care in Brazil, I think is where um, that project moves next. And then I actually am really interested in um, um, a U.S.-focused project, which, mm-hmm. is, <laughs> which is new for me. Um, but um, the other work that I have underway now, um, uh, I want to try to historicize or, or, or think about how we can um, bring some kind of critical historical insight to the um, horrendous inequalities, in, uh, racial inequality and maternal m- mortality right. in the United mm-hmm. States. Yeah. Um, so those are the two topics. Um, so, you know, just light and breezy. <laughs> well, this is this is history of medicine and race and gender. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, you have to ask tough questions, but hopefully they bring us some understanding or or, or some um, reflection or insight. So it's it's worth the the, the difficulty I, I think of, of tackling them. Um, but those are the two projects that uh, I have underway, and uh, more soon, hopefully. Wonderful. Um, those sound like wonderful projects. You must let us know when they come out and we'd be happy so. to talk with you again. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for our conversation today. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed this. Um, I appreciate all your listeners uh, who spent uh, the time to listen to this conversation about my work. And um, I hope that uh, some readers out there might find it might find it useful. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.